Today we want to explore the traitor known as gluttony. But before we get to today's episode, I want to thank those of you who support Time of Grace by engaging with the many kinds of content we offer, by telling your friends and relatives about Time of Grace, and by financially supporting the work we do. Thank you from all of us at Time of Grace. Okay, let's get started. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. First, let's look at the definition of the word gluttony, since it's not a word that often comes up in daily conversation. But maybe it should. Gluttony is an English word that is derived from the Latin word glutira, meaning to gulp down or swallow. It refers to the desire to overindulge and overconsume food or drink. Did you catch that? Gluttony is more about the intense desire to consume food or drink than the actual food or drink that is consumed. Gluttony is about desire. It's about taking excess pleasure from food or drink. But did you know that there isn't a single passage in the Bible that explicitly calls gluttony a sin? Believe me, it's true. There are no thou shalt not commit gluttony commandments in the Bible. You notice they said explicitly. What we read in the Bible about gluttony makes it crystal clear that this love affair with food is wrong. And did you know that there are only seven passages in the Bible that specifically address the deadly sin of gluttony? We're going to take a look at these seven passages and then we'll explore an interesting insight into the sin of gluttony, an insight from Bible scholar and apologist C.S. Lewis. The first passage we want to examine is from the book of Deuteronomy. Recall that the book of Deuteronomy records God's Old Testament covenant that he made with his chosen people, the Israelites, at Mount Sinai. Through Moses, the Lord God gave his law, you know, his will, to his people. Laws that govern morality, in other words, right and wrong. Laws that govern their religious life, and also laws that govern their life as a nation. Bible scholars refer to this trio in the Old Testament covenant as God's moral law, his ceremonial law, and his civil law. God's law given at Mount Sinai governed every aspect of Israelite life. What we read in Deuteronomy involved how to deal with a rebellious son who was also described as a glutton and drunkard. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. 
he is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is an interesting passage on several levels. First, the son in question is not just a glutton and a drunkard. He is stubborn and rebellious. The fact that he is a glutton and drunkard seems to be secondary to his being disobedient to his parents. Yet at the same time, the Lord God links the disobedience of his parents with his gluttony and drunkenness. Another interesting point is how these parents were to deal with their rebellious son. As we read through God's Old Testament covenant laws, we notice that there were many violations of the law that were to be dealt with by a person individually. The person himself was to carry out the punishment of the lawbreaker. But not so in the case of a rebellious son. God's law prescribed that the problem of a rebellious son was not just a personal family problem. It was a community problem. Adult children were no longer just the responsibility of the parents. Adult children were also the responsibility of the community. A stubborn and rebellious son, who was confirmed to be such a lawbreaker by the elders of the community, was to be stoned to death. Now, this seems a bit harsh to our current culture that often sees the criminal as the victim instead of vice versa. Not so with the Lord God in dealing with his Old Testament people. Note the dual purpose of God's punishment of a stubborn and rebellious son. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. God's first purpose was to be preventative, to keep the son from spreading his evil to the entire community. The second purpose was to be a deterrent for the entire community, all Israel. For any person thinking about being a rebellious and disobedient person knew ahead of time what the consequences would be. The next three references to gluttony are found in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 22 to 24, there is a section that Bible translators have entitled, The Thirty Sayings of the Wise. These were 30 individual sayings that offered wisdom on life. Here's number seven in the list of 30. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. Now, is King Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, giving us a simple lesson in dining etiquette, or is there more to it? It seems that there is much more to it than just determining which fork or knife to use while eating. The setting here is a formal banquet with a ruler, a king. Think of a state dinner where the chef can show off his culinary skills and gain favor with the ruler. But one takeaway for us is don't get used to it. One doesn't get invited to dine with a ruler very often. And it's probably a good idea not to stuff yourself like a pig in the presence of a king. 
That's just not good form. Solomon even suggests that holding a knife to one's throat if gluttony was a problem. But what about the caution of craving the ruler's delicacies, food that is described as deceptive? Well, the ruler may have ulterior motives. He may have invited you to the state dinner expecting something from you in return. Today we have a saying that relates closely to what Solomon penned. It goes like this. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Then, also in the 30 sayings of the wise, there's number 16. Listen, my son, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Solomon reminds us of one long-term consequence of gluttony and drunkenness. It's called poverty. It's possible, even with all of the wealth in our society, to eat yourself or drink yourself into poverty. Five chapters later in the book of Proverbs, King Solomon has a one-line piece of wisdom on the subject of gluttony. He says, A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. By the way, in the book of Proverbs, beginning in chapter 25, King Solomon writes pithy proverbs that contrast one concept with another. In this case, he contrasts a discerning son who listens to the truth with a son who engages in gluttony, resulting in disgrace for his family. Let's now move to the New Testament examples. Do you recall that Jesus was accused by his enemies of being a glutton and a drunkard? Both Matthew and Luke describe the same event. You'll find this event in Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7, if you want to listen to or read the, the wider context. But this is what Jesus said. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In this teaching, Jesus was talking in detail about John the Baptist. Some of John's disciples had come to Jesus one day to ask him if he was the one that John the Baptist had been preaching about. In a longer answer than just the simple yes, Jesus confirmed their question. Then Jesus spoke about John's ministry in the desert along the Jordan River. John had called his listeners to repentance and alerted the people that the kingdom of God was near. Finally, Jesus pointed out a contrast between how the people and the Jewish religious leaders regarded John the Baptist and how they regarded Jesus. The contrast between John and Jesus had to do with eating and drinking. The Jewish religious leaders criticized John the Baptist for being a recluse, eating only locusts and wild honey, and not enjoying an adult beverage at their feasts and festivals. John the Baptist never drank wine because he was a Nazarite. 
The reaction to John the Baptist from the people and religious leaders was to accuse John of being demon-possessed. In contrast, because Jesus ate and drank at many people's homes, including those of tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners, the religious leaders accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. What they criticized John the Baptist for not doing, they accused Jesus of doing. It seems they wanted it both ways. On this occasion, Jesus made his own comparison. He compared his critics, who wanted to have it both ways, to children playing in the marketplace and calling out to their friends, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Here's Jesus' point. The children in the marketplace played the flute and invited their friends to dance, but those friends didn't want to dance. So the children said, well, let's play funeral. We'll sing a funeral dirge and you can mourn. But their friends didn't want to do that either. So the critics of John and Jesus wanted to have it both ways when it came to their criticisms. In contrast, the children playing in the marketplace didn't, didn't want it either way. Don't you just marvel at Jesus' ability to drive home a point with a simple story? But what about that last phrase that Jesus spoke? Wisdom is proved right by all her children. What Jesus is saying is that those who are truly wise will understand and appreciate both John and Jesus. Did you notice that in the six examples of gluttony we've considered so far— Gluttony has been paired with drunkenness. In our seventh and final example, gluttony is paired with laziness. More on laziness in our next episode. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Pastor Titus in which he said, One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Paul quotes, uh, Paul's quote of a prophet from the island of Crete obviously wasn't intended to be a compliment. It appears we need some background information to understand Paul's point. First, Titus. Titus was a Gentile convert. Paul called Titus his true son in their common faith. And although Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts, he accompanied Paul on some segments of his missionary journeys. On one occasion, Paul and Titus visited the island of Crete, located smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, south of Greece. Paul left Titus on the island to straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. What was left unfinished, Paul addressed in his letter to Titus. This is what he said. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The bottom line for Titus was that he had to deal with false teachers. It's at this place in his letter to Titus that Paul wrote, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So, 
who was this prophet from Crete whom Paul quoted? His name was Epimenides, who lived in the 6th century before Christ. Epimenides was a philosopher and poet from the island of Crete. Have you ever heard of the Epimenides Paradox? It's a paradox based on what Paul quoted in his letter to Titus. The paradox goes like this. Epimenides was a Cretan who stated that all Cretans are always liars. Now, if all Cretans are always liars, then Epimenides was also a liar. And if Epimenides was a liar, then the statement he made that all Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, must also be a lie. And if that statement is indeed a lie, then the opposite must be true, namely that all Cretans tell the truth, which also means that Epimenides told the truth, which also means that his statement, all Cretans are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, is both true and false. Did you get that? That's the paradox. Now, Paul's point wasn't to prove or disprove a paradox. His point was to point out that there were false teachers on the island of Crete, people who had rebelled against Christ and Christ's followers. These false teachers spouted meaningless talk. They practiced deception, especially those who claimed that Christians had to be circumcised. Paul told Titus that these people had to be silenced because they were throwing Christian households into confusion and undermining the gospel. And to top it off, these false teachers were spewing their lies to get rich. The Cretans' lazy gluttony did not involve food and drink, but an insatiable desire for power and wealth. And that gets us to the deadly aspect of gluttony. At its root, gluttony is greed, because it is selfish desire and a lack of self-control. C.S. Lewis touched on the selfish desires of gluttony in his book, The Screwtape Letters. The book is a satire that consists of 31 letters written by Screwtape, who is an experienced devil. Screwtape wrote these letters to his young nephew apprentice, Wormwood. Uncle Screwtape shared in these letters effective strategies for keeping the patient assigned to Wormwood on the road to damnation. In one of the letters, Screwtape addressed the subject of gluttony, making a distinction between the gluttony of excess and the gluttony of delicacy. In the letter, Screwtape referred to another devil by the name of Glubos. Not sure of the pronunciation of that, but we'll go with Glubos. Who had been successful tempting a woman with the gluttony of delicacy. You'll get an understanding of this when I read part of this letter. My dear Wormwood, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject, so that by now you will hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled by it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. 
This has largely been affected by concentrating all our efforts on gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glubose, is a good example. She would be astonished one day, I hope will be, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce quarrelsome, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern? Glubose has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and a smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream at the plate with which some overworked waitress has set before her and says, Oh, that's far, far too much. Take it away and bring me about a quarter of it. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. C.S. Lewis's contrast between the gluttony of, a, of excess, which is how I've typically thought of gluttony, you know, long banquet tables filled with food, and the gluttony of delicacy, is more evidence that gluttony isn't primarily about food or drink, but about the attitude or desire one has toward food and drink. So, what should our attitude be? Although gluttony is only mentioned seven times in the Bible, the opposite of gluttony, moderation and self-control, are a common thread throughout the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul summed up his attitude and general approach to his life and ministry. It's an attitude and approach that is worth imitating. He said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul here encouraged us to practice discipline and self-control. Earlier in this same letter, Paul shared a similar thought. Although he was specifically warning about using our bodies in a sexually immoral way, his point applies to our bodies in general and what we put into them. 
He said, I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do everything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We honor God when we have a disciplined attitude when it comes to food and drink. One final encouragement from the Apostle Paul from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Self-control is the antidote to gluttony. Traitors. More than just the seven deadly sins, they're the attitudes that can betray our relationship with our God, with others, and even with ourselves. In our next episode, we'll explore the traitor known as laziness. And if you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.